want to speak on the subject this morning of being a man of God. It's Father's Day. I've shared with you before that often around the holiday weekends or whatever, you, you feel as a pastor this weight of responsibility to preach something themed with whatever the holiday happens to be. And often it can be the most challenging messages to craft. And that is certainly just something that you handle, that you seek the Lord for and deal with. And today God really just impressed upon my heart to bring you this thought on being a man of God. Now, ladies that are here, that doesn't mean there's nothing here for you, okay? All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable, so if the pastor takes a passage and preaches the theme, the man of God, that's not your cue to tune out or to switch off or to anything like that, but just to glean as God speaks what he has for you. And, and if you put it past the Holy Spirit to be able to do that, then maybe you need to rethink what you think of the Holy Spirit because he can certainly take God's word and use it in our lives. So this subject, a man of God. And the first question that comes to mind is simply, what does it mean to be a man of God? For many years in ministry, I have had people ask me, Pastor, what does it mean to be a man of God? What are the character traits of a man of God? As a youth pastor, I had teen young men asked me how do I be a man of God I had parents ask me how do I train my sons to be men of God do you have resource recommendations books or studies passages of scripture that I can go to that will tell me this is what it means to be a man of God you can look through Resources that have been published, articles and books and blogs and all of those things and find many different ideas about what it means to be a man of God. But yet we're left with this question today. What does it mean to be a man of God? Your Bibles are open to Genesis 18. I want you to follow along as I read verses 17 through 19. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that thing which he has spoken of him. Did you notice who is speaking about Abraham in this text? as well as the testimony that was given. God is speaking. 
the Lord. Jehovah. Yahweh. He gives this tremendous testimony about a man. Did you catch it in verse number 19? Any of us who are men, I believe would be ecstatic to have God give this kind of testimony about us. But there's something unfortunate that takes place when you and I read this. What's unfortunate is that rather than be inspired by it, we are often intimidated by it. In other words, we read a testimony like this in the Scripture about Abraham here. I know him. He'll command his household. They will do justice and judgment in part because of the direction that Abraham will give his family. And that intimidates us. I was reading in my personal time with the Lord this morning, beginning in Job. And what does God say about Job? As Satan appears before God to ask God for permission to inflict Job and his belongings and his family. And God says about Job, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in all the earth, a perfect man that escheweth evil? And we see that and we go, Wow, what a great testimony. But then rather than be inspired by it, we're intimidated by it. It scares us. And we're, we're intimidated. It intimidates us, I think, in part because we tend to sensationalize the accounts of people in God's word. In other words, we think more, perhaps, of them than we should. Not once, but twice in the Bible, Abraham is referred to as the, the friend of God. I mean, think about that. Here's a man who was God's friend. But I want you to think about Abraham for a moment. He grew up in Ur. It was a heathen people. These weren't God-honoring, God-worshipping people. It was a heathen people. And in fact, Joshua 24.2 identifies that Abraham's family were priests of idols. His father and the household led in the worship of false gods. Abraham, before God called him, may have very well been involved in some of that. God called him, and Abraham, by faith, left his lamb and his family to go to the land that God would show him. God gave him a promise that he would bear children and become a great nation. And Abraham believed God, but then 
impatiently forced the issue by sleeping with his wife's servant. Now, if we brought that kind of a story up into today's context, we would use terms like sexual assault, rape. Even then, friends, in case you're not sure, it was a sin not approved by God, but was an acceptable form of behavior in that day but not approved by God. On two occasions, Abraham left the land God directed him to for various reasons, went into foreign lands, and then lied about his relationship with his wife to preserve his own safety despite the risk to his wife. Now, what kind of a man is that? I mean, that's the man who, when someone breaks into the house, uses his wife as a human shield. I mean, we don't think that that's a a good thing. And yet Abraham did this. In an act of great faith, he journeyed to a place God showed him where he willingly laid his son on an altar to sacrifice him to God, the son of promise believing that even if God allowed him to sacrifice his son, God would raise his son to life again. Why do I share this history with you? It reminds you that Abraham, like every other person in the Bible in history, was a man. He had ups. He had downs. And yet... He exemplifies a man of God. So don't sensationalize Abraham's story. Don't look at a testimony like this and be intimidated by it. Be inspired by it. The New Testament tells us that God gives us the accounts and examples in his word to be an example to us when they do wrong so that we can avoid the wrong that they did, when they do right so we can be inspired to do right as they did. God didn't put Hebrews in the hall of faith in the Bible so that you and I can be intimidated by the faith they showed, but to be inspired by it to have that same kind of faith. And by the way, Hebrews 11 isn't about great people. It's about a great God who responds to people who believe them. You have to ask the question, what sets Abraham and others who could be identified as men of God apart? Genesis 18 furnishes us with some qualities Abraham looked had in his life but before we look at them let's concisely define a man of god we ask the question what does it mean to be a man of god i want to give you a definition this morning that i think will help you to be inspired rather than be intimidated because here's abraham a friend of god god him he would command his children in his household after him they would do justice and judgment i can show you someone like david a man after god's own heart 
God said, I want him to lead my people because I know he'll do my will. And yet David had some pretty big failures, didn't he? And yet God said this about him. So what separates men who all have ups and downs, who all have successes and failures, what separates one apart from the other is a man of God. Here's the definition. A man of God is one who in recognition of his great need characteristically depends on and seeks out God. A man of God is one who in recognition of his great need characteristically depends on and seeks out God. His great need because he knows who and what he is. His great need because he knows apart from God, his life would be in shambles. His great need because he recognizes his own brokenness. His great need because he knows he is a sinner. That sin still dwells in his heart. And at any moment, he'll show up and there will be times he will fall. But the character of his life is to depend on and seek out God. Have you ever thought about, we'll get into the qualities in a moment, have you ever thought about the differences between King Saul and King David? Saul and David. Saul did wrong and God said, I reject you from being king. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to another, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. David did wrong, and God gave him an eternal kingdom. And if you and I were in the business of comparing, you may disagree with me, but if we were in the business of comparing, David's greatest failure, identified in God's word, we might say was worse than Saul's greatest failure, identified in God's word. So what set David apart? When Saul was confronted with his wrong, Saul excused himself and passed the blame. When David was confronted with his wrong, David said, I'm man. I did do wrong. He confessed and he repented. He turned and went on doing what's right. It's about characteristically depending on and seeking out God. And we see that in Abraham's life. A man of God, like any man, has ups and downs. He has successes and failures. But in contrast to those who are not men of God, he recognizes his great need. He knows his brokenness. He understands his utter insufficiency. And in recognition of these things, he faithfully looks to and seeks God, knowing that he 
and needs him, God. And Abraham exemplifies this kind of man. Several characteristics of Genesis 18 reveal this, and I want you to see them with me this morning. Number one, would you, would you see this? A man of God submits himself to God. A man of God characteristically submits himself to God. The chapter opens with the Lord appearing to Abraham. Wow, what, what, an, what an experience. God showing up. This isn't the first time that God has shown up in Abraham's life. And Abraham knew who he was. As we study the text, I, I believe that this clearly is none other than Jesus Christ who appears and reveals himself to Abraham. I believe this because the Bible says that no man has seen God the Father, John 1.18, 1 Timothy 6.16, and that God the Son, Jesus, reveals the Father. That's also in John 1.18. This was not simply an angel. Because the text identifies the person who appears to Abraham over and over again as the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. And I believe Abraham recognized immediately who this was because he's appeared to Abraham before. In Genesis 12, verse 7 and 17, verse 1, we find that testimony. And whether Jesus had the same appearance each time or not, we don't know. But it's evident that Abraham recognized him because of how Abraham responded. The Bible tells us that in the text, Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent in midday. It's the heat of the day. Often the, the householders, the landowners, would take a break in the heat of the day and sit in that shaded place to be cooled from the heat of the day. And Abraham is doing this. God appears, Jesus appears, and he sees Jesus and two others with him from a distance. And the Bible tells us that Abraham stands from that place. He runs to him. He falls at his feet, bows himself in submission, and addressed him as my Lord. And the title he used is, a title we know of as a name of God, the title Adonai. He falls at Jesus' feet, not the two others who are with him, but Jesus' feet, and he says, Adonai. 438 times this title is used in the Old Testament, and in every single case, it's used as a proper name for God. Abraham knew who came to visit him. How did he respond to the heavenly visitor? Look at, you, if you would, at verse number two. The Bible says at the end of the verse, he bowed himself toward the ground. Abraham demonstrated a heart of humility and an act of submission right that he was before one who was a superior, the supreme master. 
We find this earlier in Abraham's life. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God called to Abraham, I'll bless you. I'll give you a family, and I'll bless those that bless your family. I'm going to take you to a land that you've not seen and that you don't know. That's God's call and command to Abraham. And Genesis 12, verse 4 represents Uh, Abraham's submission when the Bible tells us there that Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. God called him. God commanded him. Abraham submitted. He went. He obeyed God. Abraham had a real relationship with God. And it had a notable effect on his life demonstrated by his submission. Friends, I submit to you today, God is looking for a heart of humility and submission in us. Men, if you will be a man of God, being a man of God means characteristically submitting to the Lord. Humbling yourself before Him, yielding to His will to his call to his command in your life number two i want you to see this a man of god seeks god's presence look at verse three what does abraham do here my lord if now i have found favor in thy sight not away i pray thee from thy soul. Ask of Jehovah, of Yahweh, the one he called Adonai. What's he ask of him? Don't leave. Stay here. Don't, don't just walk by my house. Don't, don't just walk by my tent. Don't just pass by my life. Stay right here. Abide with me dwell with me be in my life be in my home be in my family have you ever had that visitor to your home that you didn't even want to be there to begin with you ever experienced that someone shows up and you you just you don't even want them to be there but here they are maybe you've had someone that you wanted to host like you wanted them to be their guest your guest but then they overstayed their welcome you know what i'm talking about i mean this is an age-old problem i I believe it was it was benjamin franklin actually who something to the effect of Guests or, or something like fish. They're okay for a little while, but then they rot and stink. And you don't want them around anymore. And, and that can be true. You can want a guest, but then sometimes they can overstay their welcome, and you can't wait until they're gone. But can I ask you today, how, how would you feel if God himself came knocking on your door today? You heard the doorbell ring. You heard that knock on the door. And if you're not expecting someone, maybe you're different from me, but, but I'll just 
be transparent with you this morning. If I'm not expecting someone and I hear that doorbell or I hear that knock, I tend to get a little agitated about it. Who's here? What do they want? Part of that's because it's often, well, yeah. We, we have roofers going through our neighborhood constantly. Hey, I see you're missing a shingle. I can help you get your insurance to pay for a new, anyway. It, it can be a pain. But even if you're expecting someone, I mean, how would you feel if it was God today? Knocking on your door, ringing your doorbell. Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent in the middle of the day. And as far as I know, he had no inclination that God would visit him that day. It wasn't like Abraham had weeks and months to prepare for God to show up. If you know that, if you know you're going to have a guest, and even if you're just going to have them for dinner, you know they're coming, you know when they're coming, you've got time to prepare. You have someone coming to stay with you for a few days. You have time to prepare. What if you don't know? Has there ever been a time a family member showed up, knocked on your door, and you didn't know, hey, we're here to stay with you for a week? You've had no time to prepare. I, I don't know that Abraham had any inclination that God was showing up that day. He didn't have time to prepare. And yet when God did show up, Abraham said, don't leave. Come stay with me. He looked up, he saw three figures. He recognized one of these figures was none other than the mighty God. How would you respond in that situation? Abraham ran and fell before him with the plea, don't pass away, stay, dwell, abide. Later in the chapter, God and the two angels began to make towards Sodom. And look what happens, end of verse 22, in the first phrase of verse 23. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord, and Abraham drew near. God stayed for a while, and then he and the two angelic beings got up and left and were headed on, and Abraham followed. What does this reveal? Abraham desired to be with God. He wanted God's presence. He wanted God to abide with him, and he wanted to abide with God. He desired to be in the presence of the Lord. Friends, the Bible is full of invitations to seek God. Jeremiah 29, 13, and 14, And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord. James 4, 8, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Deuteronomy 4, 29, But if thou from thence shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Proverbs eight seventeen. I love them that love me and those that seek me early shall find me. Luke 11, verse 9, Jesus, and I say unto you, ask and it shall be given you. 
Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. The Bible reveals that the man who seeks God will receive and see the power of God. Jeremiah 32, 17, All Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched our arm. There is nothing too hard from thee, for thee. The man who seeks God better knows and understands God's plans. Psalm 25, 14, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Proverbs 3, 32, For the froward is abomination to the Lord, but his secret is with the righteous. Daniel 2, 19, Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, But is, as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. The man who seeks God experiences joy in his presence. In thy presence there is fullness of joy. The man who seeks God will know the mercy of God. Abraham exemplified here one who wanted to seek out God's presence. What about you? If we were to take an account of your daily life, what evidence would we find of a person who desires to seek out God? Would there be any? You say, Pastor, you can see me here on Sunday morning. I'm, I'm not talking about Sunday. What about tomorrow when your work week starts again? And we were to jot down what you did every moment of the day. What evidence would I find or would anybody find of one who desires to seek out God? Would there be any? A man of God submits himself to God and seeks out God. Thirdly, a man of God sacrifices for God. In verses 4 through 8, we have this exemplified in the text. Abraham begins by offering water to wash their feet, by offering his land so that they can rest under the tree in the shade of the day. He suggests He'll fetch a morsel of bread to nourish their hearts. And then in verse number 6, the Bible tells us he goes into the tent. He speaks to Sarah. He says, make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good. And gave it unto a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree. What, 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 what does this reveal to us about Abraham? I think it's important that you catch the adjectives that are there in the text. 
Remember what an adjective is. It describes a noun. He goes in and he speaks to Sarah, and he doesn't just say, get some meal, right? He says, get some what? Fine meal. He goes out to his herd, and he grabs a calf. But not just any calf, right? He grabs a calf that is what? Good and tender. Is anybody getting hungry yet? I like me a good steak and, and carb meal. I'll take it all day long. What, what does this reveal to us about Abraham? He is offering to God the very best that he has. He, he's not looking to, to give God the leftover. He's not looking to give God what he's already done with anyway. He's not looking to give to God what he's already used up, the, the life and the, the value and the, the good of it, and then, oh, okay, God, now you can have this. The Bible tells us beyond giving God the best that he owned. What did it say there in verse number 8? He stands over against the tree. What does that identify? Abraham is waiting on them. He's serving. He has made himself available to them to meet the needs and to make sure that they are content. I wondered this morning, do you and I characteristically give God the best that we have? Friends, when it comes to what you give to God, are you giving him the very best that you have? And remember, we saw this recently in another message. Who does what you have belong to anyway? God. It's all his anyway. That money you have in the bank, that bank account may be in your name, but friends, that money belongs to God. Those things that you have in your house, you may have gone and paid for them, but those things belong to God. The house you live in might be in your name, but it belongs to God. It is all His. So why give Him leftovers? Why question if you will even give anything to God to begin with? Why would you and I begrudge God what he asks back from us when it's already his anyway? And then let me ask you this. If God were to come looking, and we'll see in a few moments that God does, if God were to come looking, would he find you available? God and the, the two angelic beings that were with him didn't need to serve themselves. They, they didn't need to take care of it themselves. Hey, and by the way, in case you've forgotten, God can. Did God need Sarah to bake some cakes and Abraham to get a calf and kill it and serve it to him? Did God need that? No. 
I mean, God could have, and I'm not being irreverent, God could have snapped his fingers. God could have spoke the word in a banquet like you couldn't even imagine would have just appeared. He's done it before. And by the way, he'll do it again. But God was looking. And here we find Abraham waiting over against the tree to be able to see. If God were to come looking today, I wonder how many of us right here in this auditorium God would find ready and available, waiting for what he wants us to do. Would God even find hearts that are yielded? Would God even find a, a, an individual who is ready to commit all to God? And then I want you to see, fourthly, a man of God supplicates before God. In verses 23 through 33, we have this account of God going on to Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't need to come down to the world to see the wickedness and the brokenness of man and, and his life in this world. God knows it. But God, in this evident show of that, shows up, and he goes on, and in the form of Jesus, as Jesus, the Son of God, shows up, looks on what is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God asks that question, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? And Abraham, in response, prays. He intercedes. He goes through this time with God. God, if there are 50 righteous there, would, would you destroy all? God, what about 40? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Will you destroy 40 as you destroy this city? And he works the way down to 10 and he stops at 10. Why? I don't know. Some have suggested perhaps Abraham was counting as he went along, and he, he recognized ten within Lot's family. Lot, his wife, two sons, their wives, two daughters with two sons-in-law, two, two and then daughters. Maybe. Regardless, God says for the sake of ten, if there are ten righteous there, I, I won't do what I've told you I'll do. Have you ever had that conversation with yourself or maybe with somebody else? And I understand there's good heart behind it. I've done it as a pastor. I've asked people the question, what can we do besides pray? Have you that type of question? What else can I do? And sometimes... The heart is good. It's well-intentioned. I want to do more if I can. But sometimes isn't it true that our heart, our thought is really as prayer all I can do? Is that a bad thing? Is prayer not enough? Is supplication and intercession not enough? 
I love the example of Moses in the Word of God. He was a man who effectively supplicated before God. In Psalm 106.23, the psalmist writing the history says this, Therefore he said, God said, that he would destroy them. Had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. And if you remember, this happened more than once. As Moses, directed by God, led the children of Israel through the wilderness... Multiple times they rebelled, they complained, and God said, all right, watch out, Moses, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Moses would pray to God and say things like, God, what would the Egyptians say? After you've delivered your people that you took them out into the wilderness to kill them? God, what are the nations around us going to say? God, be merciful. On one occasion, the Bible tells us that that Moses goes to the tabernacle to seek out God, and it's in a sense too late. The plague has already begun. And Moses says to Aaron, get incense, go out, stand between the living and the dead because the plague has already begun as Moses continues in prayer. And Aaron follows Moses' direction, and the plague stops. Why? Prayer. Intercession. Are you, men, a man of prayer? Are you a person who regularly, characteristically, supplicates to God on behalf of yourself? Gabe said it earlier, and I appreciated it. I need Jesus every day. I need his work in my life. I need his presence. I need his power. I need to to keep his name always before me. Every single day, do you supplicate to God for yourself? How about your family? Your church, your community? Ezekiel 22, verse 30, God, as he looked on his people, said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land. But I found none. What a sad report. Because the Bible tells me there in Psalm 126, verse 23 as we read that Moses filled that gap that breach through one simple activity prayer a man of God supplicates before God and then finally I want you to see this and we're going to turn it around a little bit a man of God submits to God he he sacrifices for God. He seeks God. He supplicates for God, to God. And then I want you to see this. A man of God is sought out by God. God is seeking. God is looking. The Bible tells us in Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, 
to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. In Ezekiel 22.30, which I just referenced, and I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand before me in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. God seeks. He looks out for men of God. Not men who are sinlessly perfect. Not men who never have downs or failures. Because we all do. So what separates any man from men of God? A man of God is one who in recognition of his own need characteristically depends on and seeks out God. Perhaps the best verse in the Bible describing what a man of God is is Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. I would implore you to commit it to memory if you have not. The Bible says, But I have showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy And here's really the most important part. And to walk humbly with thy God. Don't you love the the word choice? It's It's not walk confidently. It's not walk proudly. It's not walk with this aura of self-righteousness, it's what? Walk humbly. Why humbly? (laughs) Because we need God. So can I ask men today, are you a man of God? Maybe today God has spoken to your heart. Abraham furnishes us with some qualities that would be true of a man of God. How do those qualities line up with your life? If God were to, and I believe he is, to seek out a man today, Would he be able to walk into the auditorium of this Cornerstone Independent Baptist Church? Who could be defined as a man of God? Be your desire, and it should be mine today.